This program is part of Film Geek Radio. Visit filmgeekradio.com for more great shows. Don't change that dial. It's time for Navigating the Newsroom. Here are your hosts, Andrew and Andrew. Hello, dear listeners. Welcome to episode number 22 of Navigating the Newsroom with Andrew and Andrew. I'm Andrew Johnson, and this is the show on Film Geek Radio devoted exclusively to discussion and analysis of the HBO TV series, The Newsroom. If you like this episode, be sure to email us at navigatingthenewsroom at filmgeekradio.com or comment on the website at filmgeekradio.com. My regular co-host, Andrew Robinson, is still away in Toronto. However, he will be back next week, and we'll be recording a special season wrap-up episode where we give some closing thoughts on this season of The Newsroom. We will also be inviting back a lot of the guests that we've had on the show this season, so stay tuned for that. Tonight, though, I will be discussing the season two finale with a very special guest. He is the editor of DearFilm.net and a writer for the film stage. You may have heard him a few weeks ago when he came on to discuss the episode Willie Pete. Brian Rowan, welcome back to the show. Thank you very much for having me. I'm glad I could swoop in like some kind of <laughs> talkative superhero to help you out. <laughs> yeah, it, it always seems like whenever Andrew Robinson can't come on the show, you're around. So we may just make you our, our regular backup. Excellent. That is assuming that I continue to watch this show. Oh, okay. Wow, I can't wait to discuss uh, this episode with you then. Uh, before we get started, I have a small announcement. Uh, the second season of The Newsroom has now concluded, and this podcast, as a result, will be going on hiatus after next week's wrap-up. However, you can still find a lot of great film and TV podcasts over at filmgeekradio.com, and you may be interested to know that we will be launching two brand new weekly podcasts in the coming weeks. We will be premiering a podcast about the third season of Homeland, and a podcast about Marvel's Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. So if you'll be watching those shows, be sure to check out those podcasts at filmgeekradio.com. Are you going to be watching those shows, Brian? Uh, I still haven't seen the first two seasons of Homeland, so okay. not yet. But I am vaguely curious about Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., I guess. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see like how that ties into the Avengers and what they're doing in the films and whether or not the films and the TV show start to play off each other. Yeah, I'm not going to lie. I'm a little concerned. I think we may be reaching a saturation point. <laughs> Superhero saturation. Did this summer kill it for you? I mean, this summer, but then we also have uh, Thor coming out in, uh, the what is it, November? It's just like, oh my god, Like we got to slow down, guys. It's really, it's not special anymore. All right, well, let's talk about the season two finale of The Newsroom. This episode is titled Election Night Part 2. It was written by Aaron Sorkin and directed by Alan Pohl, who I believe directed two other episodes this season. He's uh, an executive producer of the show. And this is not a spoiler-free podcast, so if you're not caught up with The Newsroom and you don't want us to ruin how the season ends, then stop listening now. Brian, to kick things off, why don't you go ahead and briefly summarize what happened in this episode? Oh, man. <laughs> what didn't happen in this episode? Okay, okay. Let's just go <laughs> out and say it. Summary, everything turned out okay. Yeah, pretty much. It's like ev every, every, bit subplot. Of, every bit of tension and conflict is now completely diffused. Uh, we open up basically right after last week's episode, so we're still on election night. Jim and Maggie are still wrestling with the proper abbreviation for states, even though they appear to be using two completely different abbreviation methods. <laughs> yes. 
Like, I don't understand what that's all about. At the same time, there's still a question. Last week, Will fired McKenzie. This week, it doesn't, they don't really act like it, but Reese is now in charge of whether or not they get fired or allowed to resign. That's happening at the same time that Sloan is still wigging out over her book, which she didn't sign. Gary signed for her, and Neil is still trying to help McKenzie with Wikipedia, and Will is still being Will, just, you know, willing it up. And... <laughs> Don has said that he's going to countersue Jerry for emotional distress. And um, we still know who the president is. But then Barack Obama wins and Will gets Spoiler. to have one. I know. Spoiler, oh my Barack God. Obama wins. You have, I was so disappointed that yeah. our prediction of some kind of world-altering, reality-shifting thing didn't actually come to pass. Yeah, last time you were on, we, we had expressed a strong desire for Romney to win the election and for the show to go into a weird alternate universe. Unfortunately, that did not happen. So it looks like we'll be sticking to reality in season three. Which is just the worst possible thing for this show, because it doesn't adhere to reality in any other way. So that happens. At the same time, Will and Mackenzie have like one more fight where they say all the same things they've been saying. Will comes clean about the the ring that he bought her last season so that's a weird callback for them to make uh this gets Mackenzie even more infuriated at him but he decides that he's gonna marry her and she decides that she's gonna say yes because the world makes no sense and (laughs) sloan figures out that don is the person who bought her book because neil points out that he used like a bunch of fake names for movies from 40 to 60 years ago and he just happens to have one of the posters in his office like weirdly below eye level (laughs) so she goes and she signs new one for him and kisses him and then she's not allowed to speak for the rest of the episode and the episode ends with everyone smoking cigars because things are fine and Maggie admits that she cut her own hair, which is obviously a sign of psychosis. And then she tells Lisa, who happens to be at the thing, because even though Lisa makes more money than Maggie, Lisa's the one who has to work two jobs. And one of those happens to be a caterer. Oh, my God, at the party happening upstairs. And Jim gets to mansplain (laughs) some things to her. And then everything's fine. I think that's about it. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, that is about it. That is about it. Also, Jane Fonda is high again. Again? Why is she high again? (laughs) <laughs> what? Like, I just, I'm like, I was wondering if Jane Fonda at some point was reading these scripts and she's like, there's no way I'm not doing this on something because this is nonsense. And so they're like, well, how would you like to be high? And so she legitimately got high and they're just like, Sam, if you can just get her back on the script whenever you can, we don't have enough plot to really pad out two hours anyway. So just go with it. <laughs> That's That's probably what happened. Yeah. And there's just, there's a runner. There's also a runner, I guess we should say about them kind of really sticking to their Newsnight 2.0 thing, which is they found out that 22 years ago in the time frame of the show, uh, someone wrote in a college paper something about women crying rape and that that has somehow trumped the scandal that is going to remove the head of the CIA and the general in charge of operations, I believe, in the Afghanistani theater. And so there's like a, a brief, extremely brief thing where it's like, do, do you know, do people need to know going into the ballot box that, that the Petraeus thing is going to go down? Or do they need to know that 22 years ago someone said something that conflicts what they said today? And that, that becomes their, their moral quandary. <laughs> All right. Well, well, just to, to get started here, I'm getting the impression that you did not like this finale. This finale baffled and infuriated me. <laughs> Okay, so you, so you don't think it's an effective wrap-up to, to everything that's happened this season? 
okay, when you say effective wrap-up, <laughs> that brings a couple of questions into mind. Because when you're wrapping up something, it's like, are there loose ends left over? Not really, I guess. Like, this this ends with things ending. It's not a cut to black in the middle of someone about to get shot. You know, it, 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 all the questions that you could possibly have are answered. I didn't sit there thinking anything related to plot, but it's not effective in that nothing makes sense. So, I mean, I guess points for succinct finality in terms of plot, but in terms of getting there, it was it was abysmal. Yeah, there are certain things I like about it, but then there were other moments during the episode where I was just confused, and it's like, wait, you're bringing up stuff from last season, and I've forgotten how most of that happened. <laughs> it's weird because they wrap so many things up that I find myself thinking, okay, well, what do we have now going into season three? Yeah. I mean, season one of the newsroom wrapped up a lot of its plot lines, but, I mean, there was still stuff going on with the with Jim and Maggie. There but most still, of that stuff didn't even ever get wrapped up. There was still, supposedly, a madman on the loose who wanted to kill Will. A madman who was a genius at the internet and was going to shoot Will. And, and that never came back. And so when we were going into the closing moments of this finale, I was like, Wait, they've wrapped everything up. They can't wrap everything up. They have to they have to give us something to keep us coming back to season three. I half expected the season to suddenly end with everyone happy and then a random guy just showing up and shooting Will. <laughs> <laughs> and be like, okay, so so surely something like that's gonna happen where there's gonna be something <laughs> that's gonna pull us back into season three. Yeah, you would three. think there would be some kind of hook. Yeah, no, there's not though. Yeah, yeah. Unless you're still really committed to Jim and Maggie getting together. Yeah, I'm not. I'm not either. I don't know anybody who is committed to Jim and Maggie getting back together. I think I think Aaron Sorkin <laughs> might, but I mean... <laughs> All right, well, let's, let's talk specifics. Um, at the end of last episode, they had this decision to make about whether they want to cover the Brody story, where he made this comment about rape years and years ago, or if they want to break the Petraeus story. And on last week's uh, podcast... We had Joanna Robinson on, and she was doubtful that they would air the Petraeus story, and she turned out to be right. Which is crazy. Well, I was concerned that if they did choose to air the Petraeus story, it would be a weird story to supposedly restore their credibility, because it's like a, gas, a gossipy, tabloidy sex scandal story. It's exactly the type of story that Will doesn't like to report. So it would seem weird to me if they ended up reporting that and that was going to, like, save the network somehow. So Joanna called it. They didn't air that story. They went with the Brody story. And that was an, that was an interesting moment to me because this season has been really good at putting the newsroom into situations where they have to make really interesting decisions about what route to take. And I thought it was interesting that they were approaching it not just from, well, what's the biggest story, but from what's the story that we need to air right now during the election, which is most important for people to know right now. I can understand that, but like when Joanna was saying this last week, you know, I was listening and I was like, I, I didn't see that coming at all. I was like, obviously they're going to air the Petraeus thing. The head of the CIA is being embroiled in a sex scandal with a subordinate meaning that he is abusing his power, which is what happens when a ranking official is with a subordinate. Not only that, but that has now caused the downfall 
of one of the chief architects of our current overseas battle plan during a time of war. Mm-hmm. That is, it's it's not Bill Clinton getting a blowjob in the Oval Office. This is this is impactful. This is crumbling our national security infrastructure. And it, these are people who were, I believe, appointed by President Obama, which you'd think would go towards some kind of statement like, well, you know, these are the people he's choosing. Maybe, like, there's some problems. Maybe he's not, like, 100% up. Like, you're a national, a national news organization, and you're going to just stick it to some random guy who said something 22 years ago, and you're not even going to attempt to get a response? Like, uh, a lot can happen in 22 years. My opinions have changed. Instead, it's just like they just go for it and it doesn't make any sense. And I do not believe that Don would would allow that to happen, because if you really think about it, a lot of the stories that they choose to air have nothing to do with elections. Like you don't need to know about the Deepwater Horizon to make an informed local decision. You don't need to know about the shooting of Gabriella Giffords. Well, well, it's because this was on election night. (sighs) So they they were thinking, well, if we air this Brody story, that could actually impact how people vote in his district. But wouldn't it also impact the way people vote to know that the power structures that are being set up by the Obama government are being enervated from the inside? That's that's I don't know. I think that's a far more it's a, compared it's a, it's a much to much a more tenuous from relationship, a student I publication twenty two years ago. It's not like he said it a week ago and you can clearly be like, this is a man who does not have your interests at heart or this is a man who will flip on a dime. This is a person who's had a literal generation of humanity pass through, who's had his ability. Like, it's just it made no sense to me. And it was the worst kind of Sorkin creating a moral authority that is completely lacking in any kind of logic or sense. <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't mind it too much because I, I think it's interesting – Whenever you see a news organization have to question what might be best for them short term versus what might be best supposedly, quote unquote, for the public. Like whenever a news organization, whether it's the New York Times and WikiLeaks or, you know, or something like that, whenever a news organization has to decide, okay, do we want to wait to report this? And if so, how long is an appropriate time to wait? I think that's an interesting quandary. But that's something they already went through with Genoa. Right. So I agree with you. It's it's a little it's a little rocky. I didn't mind it too much and I could sort of see where the what where they were coming from like oh well this is actually more important right now and you know even if they report the story in the morning they'll still have it before most other major news outlets. So I I wasn't quite as concerned that that was the decision they made overall it i it just doesn't make any sense to me because it's such a small election and they even make a point of saying that and they're in national news they're they're wasting airtime informing people of something that's going to affect like a tenth of a percent of their viewership why didn't they go out and search for conflicting quotes from the history of everyone who was running an election then like it's it's a it's a targeted singular moment that you can't argue with you can't there's no there's no nuance to it because the guy's basically saying women are sneaky creatures who will cry rape like that's very easy for us as viewers who are not monsters to get behind and be like yeah that's wrong let's stick it to that guy but you're completely missing the nuance of the fact that a massive moment was going to come that was going to shift our national security policy during a state of war 
That's true. That's true. And and yeah, I mean, Petraeus wasn't directly appointed head of the CIA by Obama. I mean, he had to be confirmed. Oh by right. Well, yeah. Congress yeah. And, and and all that. But so I, I can see the argument that Sorkin seems to be making, which is that it doesn't really matter to the election. Well, if you think about it that way, then then everyone who voted to appoint him would be culpable as well. <laughs> And so, therefore, it would cause even more changes in the electorate. Yeah, I agree with you. It's a, it's a tough decision. It's just weird that that's the story that got brought up at this time. Yeah. You know? um, and that's the one that Sorkin decided to go with. Again, because he's sticking to the actual real timeline, that's kind of what he has to do. He couldn't make up something that was more, like, you know, juicy. He couldn't do something that was just <laughs> really simple. Like I said, like the Clinton blowjob. Who cares? You know, the guy got some strange in the Oval Office. If it was something like that, like, hey, Obama nailed an intern, like, who cares? That's not important. A lot of people would care, though. If, if it was that story, I can see how they would air that on election night, because people would care about that. <laughs> there would be people out there that are like, wait, Obama was having sex with an intern? Okay, well, okay, uh, let's not say Obama. Like, let's say, like, uh, someone's child was pregnant, like some high government official's child. Like, that's not important. It would get a lot of ratings, and it would clear right. your credibility but i mean the petraeus thing i believe you know yeah everyone was into it because it was sex but it actually did cause some problems and so it's just bizarre to me that that's the one he chose and i know he has to do it because of time frame but like things like that in this show let me know that there's a very skewed sense of the universe going on and it's begins in big things like that and then works its way down into a character level which i'm sure we'll get into all right, well, let's let's move on to some other stuff that happened in this episode. Uh, you mentioned in your synopsis, Lisa's back. Yeah, I was actually excited to see Lisa. I'm not going to I lie. was excited, too. I like Lisa. I think she's the strongest female character on the show. She absolutely is. It was a little bit convenient that she would be catering this party on election night. You would think so, yeah. Do you think I think you're stupid? I have to circulate. The whole time you thought that I'm I thought I'm smart enough that to know that I'm not smart enough. For what? You. Yeah, stop walking. Can we drop it? Lisa. I don't get you. Maggie's downstairs being a news producer. Your new girlfriend's in Boston covering a presidential candidate for her own website. And I'm up here passing out drinks. What you're working two jobs. You're thoughtful and you're authentic. And I have never seen you sneer at anyone or anything. There is, believe me, no one that you're not good enough for. And there is hardly anyone who's good enough for you, including it turned out me. The problem is that like we both said she's the strongest female character because of the way that she holds herself. The way that she was very easy and quick and like non-remorseful to leave Jim. She is a strong person. She has character. And then they just decimated it in this episode. <laughs> what do you mean? Oh, I don't. I I broke up with you because Maggie said she liked you, and I'm too dumb to be with you. Like, oh, okay. Well, that 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 part was interesting to me because I believe, if I'm remembering correctly, that's something. We talked about in season one of this podcast. I believe we discussed whether Lisa or people Jim date might feel dumb compared to him because he always comes across as this very intellectual guy. I wouldn't say he's intellectual. He's just an asshole. <laughs> <laughs> I haven't seen anything that marks him out as intelligent. He's just belligerent. Like, <laughs> well, he's up to date on current affairs and likes to talk about it. Oh, good. He's human Twitter. Yeah. If you're dating him and you're not as up to date with politics and the news, then I can see how you might feel a little bit dumb whenever he's in the room. And and I like that they kind of address that a little bit, that, that she did say, yeah, you made me feel stupid around you. <laughs> 
And and I didn't mind that. And I think that they had a nice little moment when Jim basically told her, you're the strong character and you shouldn't feel stupid. And they kind of had, they parted on good terms. But it's such a condescending, it's like the most, it's like what you say to a girl when you're breaking up with her and she has no redeeming qualities. But Lisa actually does have redeeming qualities that we Yeah, but he doesn't, he doesn't name any of them though. He says, you're working two jobs, you're authentic. (laughs) Wow. (laughs) You're authentic. So you say you viewed that as condescending. That is the most condescending. Like uh, you, you're 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 stupid. You know nothing about anything that's important, little girl. But golly, are you true to yourself? Like, <laughs> oh wow, I didn't interpret it that way. But now you're making me rethink how I view that conversation. It was so bad, and she and it's again just like, and he's he's screwing up her job because he like she's saying please leave me alone i'm at work and he's saying listen chicky i got some things to say to you and you're gonna hear them because i am me and i need to have a clear conscience yeah i was kind of worried that she was gonna get fired and i was just thinking (laughs) oh come on jim just stop screwing up this woman's life i know every time they're together i like that she was back in the episode it was a little bit contrived how she just happened to be there And suddenly her relationship with Maggie resurfaced and what happened in Africa resurfaced. And I never quite have understood why Sorkin really wanted to play up this Africa stuff. Because for the past few episodes, the characters have been saying, what what Maggie do with her hair? What's up with Maggie? And the way that he structured it, we as viewers already know why she cut her hair. Right. So when she finally tells Jim in this episode, oh, it's because the kid was playing with my hair and liked that it was blonde. I'm like, okay, we knew that. And yeah, what else? And the thing is, like women who undergo like or anyone who undergoes a trauma, like for God's sakes, like something bad happens to me. I go through like a cleansing ritual where I clean my entire room and I go get a haircut and I shave off my beard and I trim my nails, even if I already trim them. Like this is what people do. It's a reset. It's a way to gain control again. So, like, the necessity of this poor African boy had never seen a white woman before and thought my hair was pretty, and so I'm going to destroy it nine months after the actual event took place. And that's one of the things, and, you know, you're going to have the wrap-up episode. Maybe you all can talk about this more. But one of the things that hurts this show the most is how quickly it moves through time. Yeah. Because they will be months between episodes. Like, Will and Nina were together for months in real life, but we're there for like maybe a cumulative amount of episode time of like 30 minutes. Yeah, that's a good point. It's, it just destroys any sense of like continuity or impact. I mean, people kept saying like, wait, I thought Maggie cut off her hair. When did she cut off her hair? Why does she still have blonde hair? And it seems to be that she did it after the Genoa thing, which would make me think that she's more concerned about her job and her future and everything else than this kid who she inadvertently got killed. Right. Well, the final shot, or one of the final shots of Maggie in this episode is of her in the hallway, apparently about to talk to Lisa. So I guess we can assume that their relationship is now back to normal, and they're on good terms with each, with each other again going into season three. So yeah. if, you, if you were concerned about that, if you were concerned <laughs> that Maggie was going to keep having uh, roommate issues, don't worry. Yeah. They're solved. Yeah, that just seems like such a minor issue and a minor subplot to suddenly focus on. 
this episode. It was completely minor. I mean, it was it was wonderfully unnecessary. Yeah. Um, one of the things I forgot to talk with Joanna about last week was the lawsuit that Jerry filed against Dawn, which is a plot development I actually was really interested in. I thought it was really, really kind of fascinating how Jerry could suddenly make this personal right. against Dawn, and suddenly Dawn's entire livelihood would be at stake. And I was a little bit disappointed in this finale. They just kind of brushed through it pretty quickly, like, okay, I'll countersue. This isn't a legitimate lawsuit. I, I, I think it would have been interesting if they had made that lawsuit more of a, a threat right. to him. But, like, nothing's a threat. Like, at the end of the episode, they basically, like, say, we're going to tie up our shoes and we're going to get to work and we're going to beat this thing. And we have no right. reason to believe that they won't. It almost feels like a series finale. Yeah, oh, especially when uh, Maggie and Jim have their moment and there's a flashback to the first episode. Yeah, it feels like a series finale. Like, maybe Sorkin wasn't sure whether or not he was going to get renewed for a third season, so he decided to wrap up every single plot line, make sure everybody's happy. <laughs> Just so you know, okay, moving forward, everything's good. Newsnight was a success. We're not an institutional failure. <laughs> Even though we absolutely were. Yeah, that was weird how how the ultimate conclusion about Genoa seemed to be, okay, it really was just Jerry's fault. It is. I mean, a lot of it is. Like, this guy, right. he doctored the tape, and that was one of the linchpins that did everything else. But, I mean, like, Maggie apparently went months without saying, hey, I was never in the room for this. Right. Like, and that, the weird thing is that that came off as a surprise to everyone. You would think that at some point when talking about this raw footage, they'd be like, you know, Maggie, he said this, right? And she'd be like, yeah, it was crazy. Like, Yeah. And the weird, <laughs> also, Stomptonovich definitely says it happened. He so, does, yeah. I don't, I don't, I guess he's just a liar. I don't know. I don't know. But um, it's just weird to me because the, the show couldn't quite seem to figure out whether it was going to go for Jerry's the villain or the institution failed or actually the institution was completely fine. And in this episode, the conclusion was basically, we're all fine. We all did our jobs to the best of yeah. our abilities. Uh, Reese shows up and is like, I've reviewed everything, and you all did everything that you were supposed to. And most outlets would have run with this story long before you guys did, so you were good. And on the one hand, I agree with that, because yeah. for the first half of this season, I was impressed just by how well they seemed to be reporting the story and how well it all seemed to be fitting together and i i fully bought into okay i can totally see how they would run this story on the other hand once they brought up that idea of institutional failure and started showing how everyone had made little tiny mistakes mm -hmm. that sort of snowballed into something bigger that was really interesting to me but then they just absolve them all right right like they make the sign of the cross over them and their sins are forgiven like yeah I was disappointed that they didn't explore that in more detail about just how everyone making little tiny mistakes could suddenly cause a huge catastrophe. Yeah. Whether it was McKenzie and her leading questions or the fact that Charlie had suspected Stomtanovich. And those questions that she asked, like, yeah. really leading. Uh, a five-star general told us, would he, why would he lie? Or do you think he's lying? What is wrong with you? Right. Right. That's not a small thing. It's not like, you know, what a source says this and the guy's just like, yeah, it sounds about right. It's like, hey, man, why are you saying that this man who is a career military person is a liar? It's stuff like that that like really was painfully, obviously their fault. And then they just kind of let it all fly away this episode. Yeah, I was really disappointed by how 
Jerry editing the tape and also everything with Charlie and his source. Oh, God. Yeah, whatever happened to that guy? Yeah, how it was all personal. I was really disappointed that that's ultimately where the season went regarding Genoa, just because I, I think it would have been more interesting if they had really explored that idea of, oh, okay, whose fault is it? Are we all to blame in some way? Was this an institutional failing with all of our little mistakes? It just becomes a little bit too easy, I think, to pin it all on Jerry. Yeah. And while it feels good to be able to say it's all Jerry's fault, we're going to stand up to him, he's not going to be able to sue us, we're not going to stand for it, I, I think that's great and that feels good and it's a happy way to end the season. I'm just not entirely sold that that's the direction they should have gone in. I don't know what the hell you guys are thinking about doing. But you're not doing it. Last night, Charlie Mack and I offered our resignations to Mrs. Lansing. She refused to accept them, believing that the right thing to do was to stand by us. Charlie is working hard on Reese to get him to change his mother's mind. The reason, whole reason, we're trying to resign is to allow the rest of you to continue to do what we started without the burden of Genoa. Elliot would take my job, Don would take Max, Sloan would anchor 10 o'clock, and Jim would be her EP. So, I don't want to hear any more rumors about the rest of you resigning. Is that clear? No. It's not clear? No, it's clear. We're saying no. No to what? If Leona accepts your resignations, we're resigning too. Everyone who was involved with Genoa. In terms of wrapping up plot, it's a it's a fine episode. But in terms of like the actual story they're telling, it's a nightmare. Right. The other thing is, you know, you said like it felt good to see that they were really trying to get this story right. But this episode where everyone's just kind of absolved because everyone decides like, hey, we did the best we could and we did more than most. That lets you know that all of that writing was only in service of hoping that we would agree. It's not that the characters have really proven themselves to be the type of people who are going to wait around. It's just that they need to wait in order for us to not hate them at the end. <laughs> it's so obviously written for the sole purpose of keeping us on their side. Right. And it's manipulative in the worst way because it doesn't even work. Right. I think the show is much more interesting when, when you're not sure whether or not you should be on their side. Right. And you're, and you're not sure whether or not they are doing the best thing that they could as journalists and, and reporters. Let's talk about some of the other stuff that got wrapped up in this episode. On the one hand, I am glad that all of this Will Mack relationship drama is over and done with. Yeah. Because that's been in the background for two seasons now, and it's it's been occasionally kind of irritating. Occasionally. The way that they wrap it up in this episode, though, I was confused because I had totally forgotten that Will still had that ring Right. And apparently I just misunderstood from the b very beginning what had actually gone down between them or I had forgotten because I just for a while now I just assumed, oh, OK, she cheated on Will and that was it. And I had forgotten that, no, actually she, quote unquote, cheated on him when they had only they hadn't been dating for very long. And it was only when she was in love with him that she told him. Right. About it. I had forgotten that that's what had actually gone down. And maybe they, the reason they didn't play that up more throughout the series is because it really does make Will seem like even more of an asshole. He is he a huge did. asshole. He held it over her for six years that she slept with someone else when apparently they hadn't even been together that long and right. were just casually dating. And so she's like, okay, I commit to you. I love you. I'm going to tell you the truth. And the thing is, like, at some point he says, like, it was one of the episodes I'm pretty sure he said, like, you should have lied or you should never have told me. Right. That's not true. If in some way he had found out later on that she had never told him, 
he would have hated her even more and punished her even more. Right. There's nothing to make me believe that this man would have a forgiving or generous bone in his body to forgive this woman because what he viewed her as doing was choosing someone better than him. They have this big final confrontation where they lay it all out on the table. I, th- I think it's they're in the makeup room. <laughs> yeah. And then he brings up the ring and says the ring was a practical joke. And I was just trying to remember, wait, 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 what ring? When was this a practical joke? Did he give it to her back when they were dating? Did he give it to her in the first season? I can't remember what's going on. Right. Do you remember everything that happened with the ring? It was one of the episodes where he was seeing his uh, therapist for the first time, and he tells the therapist about the ring, and the therapist literally says, like, you bought, like, a quarter-million-dollar ring just to, like, win an argument that hadn't even happened yet. Like, that's disturbing behavior. Why did he buy the ring? I can't even remember. She found out that he'd been offered a talk show or something on the West Coast while she was working with him on the East Coast, and so he was concerned that she would see that as a sign that he wasn't serious about the relationship. Oh, and so he was going to, like, propose to her so they would be committed? What happened is, so that happened, like, six years ago. So she comes into his office and is like, you know, you're holding this over my head that I wasn't serious about the relationship when you were going to take a job on the West Coast, so that shows that you weren't that serious about it either, so you're just doing this to be self-righteous. And so then from his desk, he pulls the ring. That's right. And okay. he's like, I was going to propose to you. Suck it, bitch. And <laughs> That's right. I'm remembering that now. Okay, except now he's revealing that that was just a joke. Yeah, he's like, oh, it was a practical joke. I wasn't actually going to propose to you. Uh, and then she's like, you know, I may have hurt you, but I never did it on purpose. And he's like, oh, yeah, oops, I kind of did that, didn't I? Right. Well, because I was still trying to figure out what exactly happened and when, when in the timeline all of this <laughs> they, they, they were referring to, I was like, wait, wait, wait. So when she says, I would never intentionally hurt you, is she saying that right now he's saying that it was a practical joke as a way of hurting her or that six years ago he did it as a practical joke and that was meant to hurt her? That's the thing, though. I don't know. I guess doing that to her, I guess, was like hurting her because he's trying to make her feel worse again and it was all just a ruse yeah i guess saying it right now is meant to hurt her yeah and doing it at all was probably meant to just twist the knife more because he's like well i was never gonna propose to her but i guess i can pretend and lie and say that i was well well, yeah and i was sort of getting confused like wait so six years ago did he buy this ring no he bought it like a year ago oh he bought the ring a year ago yeah okay now i'm even more confused (laughs) okay (laughs) it's like okay this is this is literally it imagine that you were in a loving caring relationship and then six years after that relationship has ended the girl comes over and is just like, you know what? I'm done being uh, controlled and, and sassed by you because I know that you were never that in love with me. And you had somehow found out on Facebook or something that she was going to come to you. So you borrowed like your friend's engagement ring and you had it and told her that you bought it six years ago just so you could okay. continue to lord it over her. That's right. That's yeah. right. Okay. He is a dick. He is a bad person. I feel bad because I'm, I host a podcast all out of the newsroom, but I can't remember what happened in season one of the newsroom. <laughs> uh, okay, so he bought that ring a year ago, but told her he'd been holding on to it for six years. For six years, because he's okay. a psychopath. Okay. <laughs> he 
is a psychopath, man. And the craziest <laughs> thing is that so he 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 gives her the business again about all that stupid bullshit that about her sleeping with a guy who I believe his name is Brian and is played by um I don't remember the actor's name, but he was in Paul Schneider. Yeah, and he was in Parks and Rec and um uh the assassination of Jesse James by the coward Robert Ford. And so I really right. like him. He showed up for a few episodes at the end of last season. Yeah. And he was great. I loved him. I wish that I could see a TV show about him. Nothing to do with just the name, but I mean, it is a fantastic name. But And so at the end of this episode, he's talking to Charlie, and they basically both say, regarding both Mackenzie cheating on him and them fucking up a story and saying that America used nerve gas on civilians, except for everything we did wrong, we did everything right. And that's supposed <laughs> to make it better. That doesn't work. You've done malicious, terrible things and things that actually could kill relationships, either between you and your loved one or you and the public who's supposed to trust you. And you can't say, guys, but what about all the things I did right? Because sometimes it is just one wrong fucking thing. And seeing this show after Breaking Bad yeah. really drives home that idea. Because in Breaking Bad, Walt has done a bunch of really great things, but he's also done a few bad things. And the moral of that story seems to be... I mean, there's only two episodes left, but I think it's fair to say sometimes the terrible things you do, all the good in the world will never undo them because you've set into motion a situation that you cannot control. Right. And in the newsroom, it seems to be, oh, but if like you you're you're a pompous jackass and you're liberal and, you know, you have your heart in the right place, sometimes everything's gonna be fine. The newsroom isn't even the worst offender in that regard. I also co-host a Dexter podcast. and Oh, oh boy. God bless you. I don't know how you do this. Especially after uh, Breaking Bad. <laughs> to go from that into Dexter, a show about a murderer who really faces no consequences. Right. I, I don't know what it is about TV nowadays that you have some shows that are all about consequences and other shows that are just like, consequences? What are those? What? I don't understand. No. <laughs> I mean, it's possible to have fun with a show like that, but it has to be, like, even Dexter for the first couple of seasons when I watched it, it's like, yeah, he's a monster, but he knows it. And he's only trying to, like, survive, and he's doing his best to curb his impulses by killing people who are bad. Right. But, like, you, when you watch Mad Men and Breaking Bad now, Don Draper and Walt White are not good guys, and you're not supposed to think that about them anymore. You're supposed right. to see their flaws and understand that everything bad that's happening to them is their own doing, and it can't just be undone by them saying, oops, my bad. But that's literally what happens in this Will says, hey, there's a story about a little kid who keeps tearing up paper and his parents take him to all these doctors. And the doctor says, if you stop tearing up paper, your parents will stop taking you to doctors. That's great. The kid's not going to doctors anymore. But the destructive, horrifying, psychopathic impulse to just destroy things is still innate in his soul. And maybe he's going to start tearing up other things now. <laughs> That's a good point. That's a good point. That little boy who was tearing up the paper, he's going to shred other stuff now. Right. Okay. Well, that that's a good point. I, I mean, I like the fact that Will and McKenzie finally sort out all of their shit, and now they're married, and we don't have to worry about this anymore. It does feel like it happens a little bit too easily, especially after this major confrontation. Right. It's like they finally have the blow-up that will end them, and then he's just like, hey, let's get married. And she's like, oh my god, yay! And then... Everyone magically has cigars. There's a part of me that is hoping, okay, in season three, let's not have any more Will Mack drama. Right. But now there's also a part of my brain that's going, okay, wait, from a from a realistic standpoint, surely there's going to be more problems in this relationship, and it, they can't just wrap it up that easily. Maybe it would be interesting to see how their issues that are still there 
affect their relationship in other ways. But this is the problem. We have to stop looking at this show as anything that could be indicative of the human condition. It's never <laughs> going to happen. We keep. I've listened to this show and I've talked about this show with friends. And we keep saying it would be really interesting if they did this, if they explored these innate back and forth problems, like the, the issues that are going on. And they never do. Because the one thing you have to know is that these characters are always right. And that's what it is. That's a good point. And that's really kind of weird, especially compared to a show like, like Breaking Bad, for example. Because with Breaking Bad, Walter White is a terrible person. Right. And yet there is a small group of viewers that view him as heroic. Right, which is bizarre to me. They're bizarre and completely misguided. In the newsroom, I feel like as a viewer, I'm thinking <laughs> Will is a total asshole. And I think Mackenzie right. is right on point in this episode when she says, are you sure you're not just a massive bag of douche? <laughs> and I was like, yes, you're right, Mackenzie. That's what Will is. And yet Sorkin still seems to want us to view him as a good guy and as a hero in a weird way. Which and it, there's, <laughs> there's this weird disconnect there in both situations between what the creators seem to be wanting to do and what they want viewers to think versus what some viewers actually think. Right. And that's the problem. Like, this is like a sitcom. Like, Ray Romano and uh, Kevin James, they're not real people in those shows. And that's why they're on NBC or ABC. Like, you're looking for this archetype. You're looking for this guy who has his flaws, but at the end of the day, you know, he'll wrap his arms around his wife after they've taught their kids a valuable lesson about not smoking, and they'll kiss, and they'll go, I love you, honey, and then the wife's like, you better, and then the canned laughter comes in, and everything's fine again, because you're not looking for anything meaningful, but this show cloaks itself in so much faux meaning that it's awful, and it's also not helping that I'm watching Deadwood right now. Oh, boy. <laughs> and, like, Deadwood begins, and you think you have this idea. You're like, okay, there's Seth Bullock, who's the marshal who comes to the lawless outpost of Deadwood, and then there's Al Swearingen, who's the shady owner who, like, kills someone immediately, and you're like, oh, black hat, white hat. Like, we've got the, our, our problems happening. But then David Milch, who wrote that show, understands humanity and people, right. and he creates such rich, textured characters. Seth Bullock is a decent man who, at the same time, is still a cheat and a violent person who sometimes completely disregards the feelings of others. But you know that at his soul, it eats him up inside, and he's doing the best he can. Human failure is fine, as long as you're not just completely excusing it at every level. And that's all that Sorkin seems to be interested in doing. That's, that's an interesting point. To, to play devil's advocate a little bit. Okay. Charlie, I think it's Charlie, at one point says something to the effect of, you know, we, we're doing a good job. We are bringing hope to people. This is what News Night's all about. And I felt in a, in a weird way like Sorkin was – he was sort of speaking on behalf of Sorkin, where Sorkin views the newsroom as it's supposed to be a more optimistic, a more naive in some ways – show. And that's actually why I keep returning to Sorkin, because in everything he does, there is this overwhelming sense of optimism right. at the core of it. And yeah, sometimes it doesn't make a lot of sense in the grand scheme of things for characters <laughs> to be so optimistic. Right. But there is a part of me that does appreciate that. So the newsroom's just a perfect example of how that optimism, I appreciate what he's trying to go for tonally, 
but when you're dealing with such massive issues, yeah, you know, can you just sweep all the dark stuff under the rug? And that's the thing. Like, I know I've said Sorkin and liberal more times than I can count here. I loved the first four seasons of The West Wing, which he wrote almost independently of anyone else. Because while I don't agree with most of the conclusions that they come to, because I am more conservative than liberal, I guess fiscally and geolo- geopolitically conservative, but like mm-hmm. I'm probably socially liberal as all hell because I just don't care what people do. And it's just weird because in the West Wing, the characters were coming from a point of passion and compassion and conviction. And you got the idea that they had they had to be this outspoken, first of all, because they were actually in politics. And there was an innate belief in the system of government that they were taking part in. And not only that, but you had enough people who had enough different ideas that they would balance each other out. Josh was the uh, like idealist who still understood politics and could circumvent things. And then there was Sam, who was the writer who believed that words could change humanity. And then there was Toby, who was the surly guy who just always saw the worst in people. And he was obviously the guy that I identified with the most. <laughs> and then you have the saintly president. I, we, we talked about this a little bit last time because you can't talk about Sorkin without talking about Sorkin. In the West Wing, the president has MS, conceals it from the public, and they keep trying to make it seem like he didn't do anything wrong and people are just attacking him for nothing. But there's a literal episode where he says, like, they're going to drop all of the, the criminal charges if he just gets censured by the House, if he basically stands up and admits to lying. And in that episode, he stands up and says, I lied, I did it, and there's nothing wrong with standing up and saying, I did something wrong. Right. And that would make the world the better place if people did that. And it seems like that Sorkin who wrote that episode is dead and has been replaced by this. Well, well, it's interesting you bring that up because in the first season, Will goes on the air and basically apologizes right. for everything that the network has done in the past and basically says, we're going to do something different. And I think it would have been interesting if he had done something similar at the end of this season where he went on the air and basically said, we screwed up with yeah. Genoa and we didn't mean to. We did our very best. Here's what happened. We're sorry. Right. And you never get an idea if he does that. They say, like, we did a retraction. But it's like you don't like when you say retraction, you think press release. Right. Oops. Like, I, I mean, I mean, we're so used to seeing retractions nowadays and they're just they tend to be very standard yeah. formal things that companies have to do but i do think that the public you know there's all this talk about oh we have to gain the public's trust back i do think that if you go and you make a very impassioned plea for forgiveness and acknowledge your wrongdoing i think the public most of the time they will forgive you yeah but unfortunately this show everyone's saying we didn't do anything wrong right or whenever they do they apparently just issued a very standard retraction rather than a a personal impassioned admission of wrong Exactly. And it's crazy that they do that. Yeah, it would be I think it would be interesting if there if there was an episode where Will had to go on the air and instead of apologizing for what the net network has done in the past, he was apologizing for what he himself and his team right. did. And that would make sense. And they even seem to think that they have to win the trust back because at the end of the episode, they don't break a story or they don't say something interesting or really like prove that they've got the metal to pull this off. The the episode seems to end with them saying, you know, those troglodytes at home should just believe us because we are who we are. Mm-hmm. Like, there's a literal point where a woman, um, I can't remember her name, the Republican strategist. Taylor. Taylor. She says, um, you know, who's to say, like, who's a Democrat or who's a Republican? And he, he like, the asshole he is, he just says, well, I said it that night. <laughs> 
Like, well, fuck you, buddy. Like, you didn't even go to... Like, what is wrong with you? I, I actually, I like that scene. I like that scene a lot. That was the most problematic scene. Because it, it comes apropos of nothing. Well, the interesting thing to me was that last episode ended with Will basically telling her to bring it on. And yeah. tear him down. And they waited for like half an hour into this episode before that actually happened. And she actually started right. taking him to And task. she says, like, let me remind you that you asked for this. And I was like, wait, when? And I was like, oh, right, last episode. Because right. I thought what they were going to do is they're going to open up the episode and she's going to continue on her you never take on the Democrats thing. And he was going to use that to pull the Petraeus rabbit out of the hat. Okay, that would have been interesting. It, it would have been interesting, but the show will never be interesting. So it didn't happen. <laughs> <laughs> and he, he has that impassioned speech about how, like, like, being a Republican now is nothing but hating Democrats and being afraid of education. And it's like, it's such a simple, stupid way of making an argument like that, because it would be exactly as easy to just reverse it and say, well, being a Democrat involves hating Republicans and anyone who earns over $100,000 and anyone who goes to church and like has a strong sense of family. And it's, it's, you're, it's ad hominem bullshit stereotypical attacks that are not nearly as smart as this show claims that it wants to be and so it just torpedoes everything else on a side note i hope taylor is back i do too if i watch (laughs) i think she's she's a great character and constant simmer really knocks out of the park with her performance i think it'd be great if she just got hired as uh, ACN's regular Republican correspondent. Right. like a member of the panel, like, you know, how Sloan right. started. I would love it if her and Jim got together, because she's apparently the only girl <laughs> that... She's the only girl that's not beholden to Jim in some way, because even at the last part of the episode, Haley, who is a strong, independent woman, who is running her own website, like, says to Jim, thanks for the Romney interview. It's like, oh, right, the only reason that you're fucking him is because he handed you <laughs> something like you're a duck in a park. <laughs> Wow, harsh. If Taylor was his girlfriend, he would be like, oh, you know, Taylor. And she'll be like, you know what, Jim, shut the fuck up. And he would probably do it because she has a way of shutting him down. Wow. I think she might be too old for him. But now I'm imagining that relationship and suddenly it's it's all I want to see. It's great. I thought that's where they were going when they brought her back last week or even the week before. Like, I thought it would be so this is me fan casting again. But, like, remember when they go out to dinner mm-hmm. and they're having that, like, crazy conversation? So I thought it would be that type of thing where you wake up the next morning and, like, there's, like, <laughs> bottles of champagne and Jim is, like, in bed. And then he rolls over and instead of Haley, there she is. There's Taylor. <laughs> and it's just like, oh, no, what have we done? Like, <laughs> That's interesting. You know, if Will and Mackenzie hadn't gotten engaged this episode, I was kind of thinking that maybe she and Will we're going to start to hit it off. Like, this fight, (laughs) sparks were going to fly during this on-air fight that they have, and they were going to realize, oh, we may disagree, but we both love each other, and we we have this connection. (laughs) It would be great if Reese came in and said, after this, you're going to be fired. And so then after that, he sits down, and he's like, fuck it, and then he just grabs Taylor, and they have an impassioned kiss on air after, like, a shouting (laughs) match. They do have that fist bump at the end, though. Yeah, that's true. They do have a fist bump, which was weird. It was extremely weird. It's just like, we're all friends. The only thing weirder than that fist bump was that somehow in a New York building filled with all kinds of sensitive equipment, everyone was able to immediately produce a cigar and begin smoking it. <laughs> you can't smoke outside in New York. That is a good point. But I guess that's the uh, the fairy tale nature of this show. One thing I do want to bring up, I wasn't quite 
clear at the end. Did Jim's call turn out to be right? Uh, yes, I believe it was. Okay. Because I was kind of wondering, like, wait, they just show the numbers there, but I don't know. There's, like, a really quick insert shot, but they never really delineate which side is which, nor do right. they give you enough time to look at the things. But I think his look of relief was like, oh, good. I didn't cause another understandably terrifying problem for my company. I was just thinking, great. Am I going to have to go look on Google and find <laughs> out who won this race to figure out what could happen in season three? Because that would, that would be interesting if it ended with Jim having made this wrong call and not doing a retraction. <laughs> And, you know, would that come back to bite him in a way? Jim, who has earned nothing. I was kind of wondering in the back of my mind, like, what if everyone turns out okay and no one has to resign, but then because Jim screwed up a call, yeah, have to fire him. Because it was purely his fault. Yeah. Again, if this show was interesting. I will say I liked more of this episode than you did, yeah. but can we can we both agree that the entire season... Sorkin has knocked Don and Sloan in that relationship out of the park. I will agree with that. Like, she comes in, signs the book, and then Strong Woman kisses him, and then she just leaves. Yes. And then I was like, oh, God, he's going to fuck this up somehow. But then Don goes, like, what I have can't be taught. And then Mac just yells <laughs> at him. I was like, okay, thank God. Yes, that was such a satisfying conclusion to that sexual tension that's been building up all season. And also a very satisfying way to cap off what was a pretty stupid subplot. Really stupid subplot. And like I said earlier, the names thing was just dumb. Is it really easier for him to rack his brain for a bunch of like 1950s screwball comedies than to just like say John Smith? I didn't mind that. That seemed like a Don thing to do to me. I don't know. I don't know about that, but okay. I'll, I'll, I, it, because of the way that it ended, I was willing to accept that. And speaking of stupid subplots from, from last episode that were wrapped up in this episode, everything with McKinsey's Wikipedia page, I was just trying to figure out, okay, is Sorkin trying to make some weird sort of point here? Like about how with Wikipedia, they actually have procedures set in place where you have to really go a long way to verify something or to change something. I was wondering if he was actually going to do that. Like if Mackenzie was going to like yell at someone from Wikipedia and they were going to say like, well, you know, we understand that new media is like under fire, blah, blah, blah. Like we have a complex system of checks and balances to make sure. And then it would dawn on everyone like, oh, like the Internet's important, too. But then it wasn't. Or, oh, no one would ever be able to go on Wikipedia and say that <laughs> the U.S. used sarin gas. Hmm. Right. <laughs> oh, my God. Yeah, like in last week's episode, they kind of made fun of the fact that, oh, I can't believe you have to do this on Wikipedia. But I was just thinking, well, yeah, they have to make sure you're not just yeah. going to feed them a bunch of bullshit. She's like, I'm a primary source. It's like, oh, and no one's ever lied uh, before Right, no one's ever lied about themselves. Let's go ask Stomp Tanovich. Oh <laughs> yeah, there, there was a there was an interesting conversation. There was a little interesting exchange about old media versus new media. Yeah, between Jim and Haley. I thought that was nice, and it was the first time in in the show where Sorkin actually seemed to be giving new media some credit. Yeah, which was you know it was nice, I guess. Right, and and also um, Leona is apparently loves Twitter. Oh God! Which I thought was nice because there were so many little jabs at Twitter and social media in season <laughs> one, and here yeah. you actually have the head of ACN being like, "Oh yeah, I get a lot of my news from Twitter." Yeah, the head of ACN. I mean, but 
How wasted was Marcia Gay Harden in this show? She was a little bit wasted, yeah. They didn't give her much to do. No, after a while, like the the last two episodes when you'd expect her to have her like her game face on and be doing some lawyering, she's just like, Look at me in my dress. I'm down to pound and then that was it. Like she apparently sent out an email with some book quotes that convinced everyone to do things. <laughs> All right. Well, the only other thing I'll mention, and I'm sure Andrew Robinson and I will have a very long rant about this <laughs> next week. Patton Oswalt, not on the show this not season. Not on the show. It was weird because he said that he would be, and we all knew he would be. It was announced before the season aired that he would be part of the cast, and I'm assuming the only conclusion I can draw is that apparently when Sorkin went back and reshot some portions of the first three episodes and restructured yeah. the season, apparently he ended up cutting out that character. Well, that's the weird thing because he tweeted, like right after that episode, he tweeted out something along the lines of, I wasn't in there, I guess I got edited out, and I thought it was a joke. But it wasn't a joke. He was being serious, which is why it's really difficult to follow comedians on Twitter. <laughs> well, yeah, I was wondering, like, OK, he wasn't in this episode. Is he going to pop up later? Yeah, like they're just going to shift him a little bit. I don't know. Yeah. And then in the finale, I was thinking, all right, is Patton Oswalt going to show up? Maybe <laughs> he'll show up and suddenly it'll be implied that he's going to be a major character in season three. Maybe he'll come in and shoot Will in the face. Well, he was he was supposed to play the new vice president of human resources. Oh, my God. So I was like, I was thinking, wait, is he going to come in and be like, we've hired someone new or we're getting rid of all you, you cast members. I, I don't know. Stop fucking one another. You're causing mayhem. <laughs> yeah, that's probably going to happen next season. Someone's going to have to come say that and be like, yes. come on, guys. Too many office relationships. <laughs> going back to this show being on HBO, I don't understand why it is. Yeah, that's something that, that I've mentioned before about how other than the cursing, I just said fuck, and I was like, wow, I say it more than they do on the show. Yeah. And there's a point where Elliot says, he just, he has to switch chairs, and he says, fuck. And I'm just like, oh, that's the one that they need to justify being on HBO. Because <laughs> there's nothing else. It's not even like they have really heady material that they're dealing with that's like, ooh, this is an upscale audience. It's like, Republicans are dumb. Well, that's an interesting point, and, and that makes me wonder, like, is one of the effects of it being on HBO the fact that it can be a little bit more partisan? If it was on a broadcast network, would he have to be a little bit nicer to Republicans? Well, I mean, obviously HBO is going to have a more left-leaning... Right. That's, any any good entertainment will always have more left-leaning fans. If the newsroom was on like NBC, yeah. for example, do you think that the network would be like, hey, a lot of our viewers are conservative, so don't condescend to them too much? No, I don't think they would at all. I mean, okay. if you okay. look at NBC dramas and comedies, like none of them is really conservative. But I mean, like, like you talked about earlier, the West Wing seemed a little bit more balanced in that respect. It wasn't quite as condescending. It all came from passionate people and you had multiple points of view. If that's the case, then they should get it on NBC as soon as possible because this show's off the rails. <laughs> because again, like in in the West Wing, Republicans rarely won or were rarely ever right. But every once in a while right. they'd mount a defense and it would be at least interesting. And in this one it's just people whining. They would always get a chance to lay down a decent counter argument. Yeah. And if there was a decent counter argument to be made, people would accept it. Like when she's talking about like four hundred dollars for an ashtray, what's the Navy doing? And then the guy right. like shatters the ashtray and it only is in three pieces and he explains. Like that's good. That's like an interesting way to make a point both in service of national defense 
and budgetary spending, it cuts both ways. And it's interesting and it teaches you something and it comes from a place of intelligence instead of just the newsroom, which is this weird blend of very arch pretension and just like anger towards people that it presumes to be beneath it. Well, I don't have a whole lot more to say about the finale. It all ends on a very happy note. Uh, <laughs> Let My Love Open the Door by Pete oh. Townshend plays on the soundtrack. Worse than Coldplay. Don't you love it when the newsroom ends with these montages set to music? This was worse than the Coldplay one. I'm calling it. <laughs> it absolutely is. It's just so bad. I will say that Haley or Hallie has the world's weirdest superpower which is being able to tell that a woman has cut her own hair over a Skype connection in the course of two <laughs> seconds. So this is just Sorkin and women again. She's like, she cut her hair, her own hair. That's extreme. What are you fucking kidding me? Like, you've never <laughs> known a girl who hasn't like cut her own hair. Maybe she's punk rock. Maybe she's into crass now. And this is just what she's doing. A woman cutting her own hair is not extreme in that way. Not in the point where... A woman who's met her once before will look at her over Skype and be like, uh-oh, that girl's off the rails. Someone better go do some man-talking to her. <laughs> Speaking of Maggie, the episode ended with her yeah. looking at that news bulletin, which I thought was an interesting way to, to end the season. And it almost justified that terrible flashback oh my that they God. had. Like when she and Jim are having this, this conversation and then she suddenly says, do you want to know when I first noticed you? I was just like, oh, my uh, God. No, we're done with you, yeah. Maggie and Jim. You've moved on. I like it that way. Let's not go back <laughs> to this season one relationship. It was terrible. But, yeah, it did come back for that. But, yeah, and it, 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 it did seem like they included that just so they could end it with a note of Maggie getting the news bulletin right. while everyone else is partying which is interesting to me because are we are we now supposed to assume one that maggie is over africa i think that's what we're supposed to get yeah she's back hard at work being a good journalist also are we now supposed to assume that maggie is one of the through lines of her over the course of the show going to be her eventually becoming like the new gym i think that it was that yeah because it seems like she was still lacking in confidence and she's like, you know, you clicked on that iNews alert and like you knew something was up. And she's like, I got a little kid killed. And he's like, you went into the building like you tried to you're save tough. that person. Yeah, you're tough. I don't know. And it was, it was just kind of either bad writing or I just don't get it. But he's like saying that she's tough because she went in there and she's like, well, you're tough because you clicked on a news link. But I mean, yeah, I think it's supposed to show that like she's kind of over it. She's not treading water. She's not afraid to go looking at things now. Which, you know, works. I have my fingers crossed that that means she's going to be a much stronger character in season three. She can't get much weaker. <laughs> yeah, yeah. She's, she is the weakest character on the show right now. I'm hoping that that means from now on she's going to be strong. She's going to be smart. She's going to be a regular, hardworking part of the news team. <laughs> I hope so, too, because I feel like that's what they were trying to say. You know, like she, right. she didn't she didn't say, oh, my God, the thing is going, Jim, where are you? She's like, fuck this. I'm doing it. And then she clicks. Well, it's interesting that in these past few episodes, Maggie's been doing a pretty good job with everything. Jim's the one that's been making mistakes. Right. So do you think that maybe they're going to switch places where eventually <laughs> Maggie's going to become like the super competent 
uh, journalist, and Jim is suddenly going to be floundering for whatever reason, maybe because subconsciously he's still in love with Maggie, or I, I don't know. I hope to God it doesn't. <laughs> I would like just everyone to be competent. That would be great for me. <laughs> Speaking of competencies, I do want to point out that they seem to have an open hatred for the DC Bureau. Oh, that was interesting. Man, when, when that DC reporter slams what <laughs> happened with Genoa, I was thinking... Okay, that's cool. I wonder if we'll get to see more of them in the future. Yeah, and the crazy thing is that, like, the DC woman is completely right. Yeah. And Max, like, simmer down, bitch. And the DC woman's like, excuse me, you've perpetrated a massive journalistic fraud, which has tainted our entire network, and us blameless folk down here, who've always been shat on, who didn't get to throw to Obama during the, um, the Osama thing, and who don't, for some reason, get to call the election... Like, these poor people in the D.C. Bureau <laughs> are just being stepped on always. And that's where Jerry came from. So I don't know right. what D.C. ever did to Sorkin. But I, on behalf of the city, I apologize. Stop being such a dick. Maybe his four years working on the West Wing just made him hate <laughs> Washington. Yeah. Uh, what I do love about that, though, and what felt really genuine to me about the D.C. Bureau, is that if you put a gun to my head, I could not tell you what ethnicity that news anchor is. <laughs> That is a good point. That is a good point. They do have a much more ethnically diverse set of anchors. Yeah. There's uh, the great 30 Rock episode where Jack's wife's rival is like the ethnically ambiguous like news anchor from like the, the late show. And yeah. there's that scene of her and she's like overpronouncing everything in like uh <laughs> like first she does a really heavy Latina voice and then she does like a French voice and then she just says something in Chinese. And that's how I felt with this. Because like, that's, that's, that's true. Like, news anchors, for some reason, the more ethnically ambiguous you are, the better you are. Well, speaking of ethnic diversity, I'm still kind of disappointed that they didn't do much with Neil after the first few episodes. Yeah, he had his OWS thing, and then that was it. Other than that, he was basically just checking Twitter and running really stupid errands for Mac and Sloan. I think I called someone, I called Jim earlier human Twitter, but I guess, like, Neil is just like a man who can only speak in twitter right because that is half of everything he does is just like hey i just saw this on twitter there's this tweet that you've gotten you might <laughs> want to take a look <laughs> this girl's bad mouthing you i don't know this kid says he's gonna come out on tv i don't know i used to do important things i don't know all right well is there anything else you want to say about election night part two looking over my notes i do not believe so okay well it sounds like you really hated the finale yeah i liked it more than you but i will agree it was it was a little bit rough at times the execution was a bit off i don't mind the fact that it ended on such a happy note for everything it just feels (laughs) a little bit too neat yeah there is a there just showing how contrived this is so Jim actually at some point says, I don't think I should go talk to Lisa. And then Maggie's like, what if none of us are here tomorrow? Like, Because they're all worried about getting fired. And it's like, you're not going to die. You're still going to be living in New York. He could still talk to her tomorrow. <laughs> That's the stupidest excuse to get Jim to be a dick to someone again in the middle of their job ever. And that's just that's that's the kind of sloppiness that the show ran for in the last episode that was just upsetting. Yeah. I just needed to say that. It's literally the only thing I haven't said this on my notes. And it sucks because, I, as I remember, I was pretty positive on the last episode when I was on 4. Mm-hmm. And up until I loved Red Team 3 because it did end with them saying, like, it was an institutional failure, we made a mistake. But then everyone's just like, Jane Fonda says the word hizzy, and it all goes off the rails from there. <laughs> 
it's all Leona's fault. If only she had <laughs> let them resign. That would have been interesting. I thought they were gonna like go to like a current station, you know, like the like a new upstart thing. Maybe Neil would have an in somewhere. Like Keith right. Olsen did. He went to like current and people i think al franken went to like air america and stuff like that would have been interesting to like really exercise how the new media is working and maybe use will as a way to show that the two could work together but they failed that i think that season three of the newsroom should be about acn's rivalry with al jazeera america <laughs> oh god <laughs> like al jazeera has now entered the u.s market and they are here to kick ass and <laughs> <laughs> suddenly acn is like oh no what are we gonna do it's funny there's a um there's a subway advert when i go to work in the morning in dc and it's something like al jazeera news and it's like i want to be informed by my news not led by it or not um right and i was like oh it's like the newsroom al jazeera is doing what the newsroom wants to do right uh, i normally don't have access to al jazeera but for the past few weeks i've been staying in a place where i do have access to al jazeera america and i've been watching it and as i watch it all i can think is man i really wish this is what the newsroom was doing <laughs> I haven't watched it yet, but I, I, I really kind of want to now because I, I saw that one subway advert and I'm just like, I need to know. I need to know what that's like. It's a really it's man. It's it's definitely risen to the top of my list of like TV news networks. I'm not a big fan of TV news, but if if I had to watch what I'd probably pick out to see America, <laughs> it's just so different from all of the other networks out there. Yeah. It's kind of refreshing. <laughs> All right. Well, that'll wrap it up for this episode of Navigating the Newsroom. We would love to get your feedback on the show. You can email us at navigatingthenewsroom at filmgeekradio.com or comment on the website at filmgeekradio.com. You can also subscribe to the show through iTunes. So if you like this episode, please write us a review. That would really help us get the word out about the program. You can also donate to us through the website. We really appreciate your help. And don't forget to check out other great shows on Film Geek Radio, including Cinema Fix and The Nerdy Projectors, and our upcoming shows all about Homeland and Marvel's Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. Brian, it's been great having you back on the show. Where can people find more of your work? Uh, I write for the film stage, and I uh, host the film stage show there. And uh, you can find me at DearFilm.net, and I tweet on Twitter <laughs> at Brian J. Rowan. You can find some of my writing at MovieMezzanine.com and Pathios.com. You can also follow me on Twitter at WriterAndrew. If you do follow me, be sure to send me a message. Let me know you're a listener, and I will follow you back. That'll wrap it up for this episode. I'm Andrew Johnson, and that's the way the cookie crumbles. This has been a Film Geek Radio production. Film Geek Radio. Yeah.